All right, well, thank you all, everyone, for uh, coming uh, through the snow and the sleet and the storm. Um, we're very glad to see you and very glad that our speaker this evening has arrived. Um, my name is Reginald Harris. I want to welcome you to the Pratt Library or welcome you back to the Pratt Library. Um, tonight's program is part of our unending series of events um, and also, in this case, one of our special African American History Month events, um, which are highlighted here in our lovely compass. Um, um, and I want to point out that we've been doing a film series on Saturdays here this month, and uh, this coming Saturday we're ending, um, it's been called the Back in the Day series, and so we're ending with uh, a little bit of, uh, okay, it's Crush Groove, all right, so I know. But anyway, I mean, it, you know, hey, we had a couple of Charles Burnett films, and we were very serious, and now it's time for, you know, to... To, for one DMC. So anyway, so that's uh, this Saturday. And um, next Wednesday, right here, um, we are having Ernest Hardy, uh, straight off the plane from Los Angeles, um, a, a film and music and culture critic, uh, reading from actually his new book, which is going to be Blood Beats Volume 2, will actually be debuted right here. I think the publisher is bringing it directly from the printer uh, to us, so that'll be very exciting. And also... Um, also in March, um, Dr. Syke Williams Forson, you may have heard her on NPR, Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power out at the Waverly Branch um, on 33rd Street. So, but that's next one. But today, tonight, it's my pleasure to welcome Esther Varm. Um, like a lot of people, I love movies. Um, I'm probably more of a fan of old movies than, than new movies. But anyway, I love movies. And also, like a lot of people I know, I'm often disappointed in the way that African Americans are depicted in film. Um, there's even a friend of mine who does his best to avoid most black films. It's a black movie. He doesn't want to see it. You have to sort of drag him to it because he just expects the worst. Um, while not all black films have been bad, not all of them been all that good either. And so we're fortunate enough to have a resource like Esther's. Uh, we've got to have it, 20 years of seeing black at the movies. It's a collection of articles from her seeingblack.com website and other print and online locations. And the book helps us to navigate through the various depictions of African Americans on film from the emergence of Spike Lee in the mid-80s to 2006. And in fact, it sort of goes, because it starts, well, it, it's got, she's got to have it, but it also has um, Spike Lee's documentary about Katrina. So those are sort of like the, in a sense, the bookends for there. Um, the reviews and commentaries look at films that were black in content and tone, movies featuring black stars, and OPM, other people's movies that were of significance to our community. Um, the founder and editor of SeeingBlack.com, which is a website devoted to the dissemination of reviews, news, and commentary from a black perspective. Esther Ivarum is also, close to my heart, is the author of two books of poetry. I have, to, I have to say that, you know, I had the particular spectacular Living in Babylon and the Time Portrait of a Journey Home, both from Africa World Press. Uh, former staff writer for the Washington Post, New York Newsday, New York Times, and recipient of a National Arts Journalism Fellowship. And Tavis Smiley, who some of us have heard of, has praised her deft, insightful, and good-humored voice and said, oh, we've got to have it in this groundbreaking collection spanning 20 years of black film. She proves that we have our own way of seeing and appreciating the movies. And we are very pleased to have her through the storm, ladies and gentlemen, Esther Ivarum. here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, my voice isn't the strongest right now. I'm kind of getting over some whatever's going around, but um, 
I hope you can hear me okay. And it's a verum. <laughs> you know, you always say, <laughs> it's okay, it's all right. Um, I just, I guess I want to say a little bit about um, the book before I read. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, I know, but um, I, when I left the post, um, I left, I told them I was going to go on a book leave. I told them I was going to go on a book leave, but I just never went back to the paper. And um, I first was trying to put together a collection of essays on all kinds of art. And um, I had a really hard time um, kind of selling the book. I had to, um, they all want my novel. You know, they said, well, why don't you give us the novel first, and then we'll publish your essays. Nobody was really interested in any essays about art. And um, as it turned out, one of the editors um, who had looked at the original essay book um, got another job, and she was in a position to do this book. And she called me. She said, you know, um, can you send me something? And I did, and this book was the result. Um, but, you know, when I left the Post, it was partly because I was very frustrated around the fact that we often lack critical voice about our own culture. Um, even though I was writing film reviews and book reviews and music reviews and at the Post and at newspapers in New York, all the critics, you know, for um, all the arts at the newspapers where I worked, they were all white. And that's okay. But when it comes to um, looking at our own art and critiquing our art, um, you know, what we have to say is important too. You know, how we view the film, how we view the concert, how we listen to the album is very important. And very often that just wasn't being reflected in, in the newspaper reviews, articles, in the, in the newspaper. So I was very much determined to kind of like still stay on my mission to kind of right this wrong. And um, this book and seeingblack.com is just, you know, on that same journey, you know, is on that same journey to um, highlight not just my voice, but just uh, any any writer out there who's trying to to um, look at culture and look at it critically, you know, um, I want to give them an opportunity to be heard. So I want to um, read a couple pieces from the book and um, hopefully have some discussion because that's the most that's the most fun thing and. Um, uh, it seems like the pieces that I've chosen to read at readings, they kind of have a thread, and um, maybe we can talk about that thread if you, you pick it out. The first piece is called, from the second chapter of the book called The New Black Hot. She's got to have it. August 8th, 1980, August 8th, 1986. I am introduced to this new era of black film in a small movie theater on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Outside this dark space, I live in a media image saturated environment filled with heated and subtle racist, racist speak from President Reagan on down to local talk radio. Within that saturation, there is buzz among my friends about this new film, She's Gotta Have It. And there are small advertisements for it in the newspaper I work for featuring a photograph of a quartet of young blacks, one woman and three men. The house lights dim and a montage of black and white images appear on the screen that look to be of everyday black folks in Brooklyn. Then come the characters, starting with Nola Darling, who address the camera and make it clear that this film will be about Nola's sex life. I am sure that I have never seen anything like this on the big screen before. 
First, a black woman of my 20-something generation playing the part of an everyday black woman as opposed to some larger-than-life Pam Greer super babe or trashy hooker. Finally, that black woman is dealing with a subject near and dear to my heart, men and dating. Another montage comes, this one hilarious, with a series of Nola-described sorry brothers who, with even sorrier lines such as, you're so fine, I drink a tub of your bath water. Even in their sorriness, I know these men are talking to me, that these jokes are meant for me, and that under no scenario am I the object of another culture's joke that I don't understand. When Nola and her main man Jamie are nude in bed and the screen coddles her bare dark breasts in their lovemaking, I know I have never seen anything like this. The white man sitting in the row in front of me begins to breathe very heavily. Beyond the novelty of a young, brown-skinned black woman starring in and featured as a beauty in a film, and the film's artistic and comedic touches, I am fascinated by the premise of the story, that a woman, Nola, Tracy Kimmela Johns, is the one openly juggling three men and her reputation, as opposed to the normal scenario these days of a man doing or trying to do the same. The writer, director, and producer Spike Lee, a recent graduate of New York University's Graduate School of Film, obviously doesn't feel any reluctance about feeding derogatory stereotypes about the supposedly sex-crazed black woman. In fact, he seems to delight in thumbing his nose at such racist ideas. For much of the film, anyway, he subverts the macho pecking order in the black community and gives Nola control over her relationship and sexual choices with three distinctly different men, Jamie, Mars, and Greer. That control continues until one brutal scene between Nola and Jamie flips the script and a macho brutality seems to pre prevail. Through Lee's character, Mars, She's Gotta Have It offers hints, primarily through sports references, of the common nationalism and race speak that still occur among young blacks in the I Gotta Get Mine 1980s, such as a rejection of the Boston Celtics and their media-adored Larry Bird. Nola creates a painting and collage on the wall of her loft apartment and pastes up headlines about police brutality, including one about the case of Eleanor Bumpers, an elderly black Bronx woman killed by police in this city two years ago. This film is also fascinating for how it features an artistic lifestyle as opposed to a lifestyle based on the nine to five rat race. It offers an alternative vision of being to being a baller, an entertainer, a suit and tie guy or gal, or some type of cop, as in one from Beverly Hills. For all the sex going on, I don't see any condoms, not that there aren't any. When it comes to Nola Darling, I am fascinated, infuriated, jealous, disdainful, and curious, but I know I have seen something new, including the parts of her that are me on the screen. Um, the next piece I'm going to read is um, uh, several years later. It's um, the year 2000, uh, April 21st, 2000, Love and Basketball. Love is a rough-and-tumble sport. Relationships are negotiated, massaged, prayed over, postured, and rejected. Seldom do they go smoothly like a perfect baseline jumper hitting nothing but the bottom of the net. Until recent films such as Love Jones, Sprung, Waiting to Exhale, and The Hood, I'm sorry, The Wood, 
Few films focused on any substantial relationship between a black man and a black woman, be it smooth or stormy. Love and Basketball, the fine feature debut of writer and director Gina Prince Bythewood, is first of all a part of this welcome genre of new African-American romances. Second, it touches on complex relationship issues that emerge in this era as feminism, post-feminism, and anti-feminism battle for turf and credence in the black community. Love of Basketball is the vehicle through which Prince Bythewood, an athlete herself, tackles the gender, gender sport. Quincy McCall, Omar Epps, and Monica Wright, Sanaa Lathan, grow up next to each other in a middle-class section of Los Angeles. They are fast friends and basketball buddies after young Monica proves that she can hang on the court with the fellas. The early kid scenes are a little clunky, but overall Prince Bythe would handle shots of both play and intimacy with a lot of finesse. Lathan, who appeared in The Best Man and The Wood, steps out strong as an up-and-coming film diva to be reckoned with. She relies on her ability to be emotionally convincing as well as her considerable screen presence and acquired basketball skills to handle this complex lead role. Epps is good, as it seems he plays slight variations of the same tough, cool cat in every film. More of Love at Basketball, however, focuses on Monica and her struggle to find professional fulfillment with romantic happiness. So Monica is really a black woman for the modern era. The soundtrack, a mix of 70s and 80s hits and new tunes, helps to pace and date the film. Depending on your taste, a pumping Al Green's love and happiness at the start will either get you in the mood or seem like too much love too fast. Though both, both Quincy and Monica develop into star student athletes, they are of course tracked by gender. Quincy, whose dad was an NBA player, sets his sights on an NBA career too. But nothing of similar magnitude awaits Monica. Even in high school, as Quincy enjoys media attention, offers from prestigious colleges, and propositions from gaggles of girls, Monica is ridiculed for still being a tomboy with no fly hairdo, long nails, tight dress, or high heels. She tires of her prim mother, Alfre Woodard, harping on her, and in a comical moment, declares herself to be a lesbian just to shut her up. When Quincy and Monica's friendship develops into a romance and they head off to college, their different gender tracks, as well as the complexities of modern black relationships, develop as well. The film, like others, warns black women that a focus on career and personal development can block their chances to get a man. It tells us that there is always a woman waiting in the wings, ready to snap up an attractive black man, but stop short of preaching to women to pursue or hold on for dear life. And like recent films, it says that women must be the ones to make the relationship happen. Monica has to play a game, literally in this case, to get a man. This potentially corny or misogynist point in the plot only works because it turns out Quincy is also forced to think about and play for a woman in his life. The pre-feminist wisdom of Monica's mother combined with Monica's modern female sensibilities, including her athleticism, to create an ending that lets everyone win something worthwhile. Okay, I have one more piece. And it's toward the end of the book. Um, it's, um, it's the beginning of a chapter called Baller Shot Caller. And it's called Tyler Perry's Feminist Appeal. And it's dated May 17, 2006. Even for Medea, 
Tyler Perry's gun-toting matriarch of stage and screen. One scene at the start of Diary of a Mad Black Woman is outrageous. Inside the walk-in closet of the mansion where her granddaughter Helen used to live, Medea furiously whirls her tall, heavy frame and shreds the new designer outfits of the other woman who has moved in with Helen's husband. Quote, this is for every black woman who has ever had a problem with a black man, end quote. Medea yells while ripping reams of couture garb. So goes this particular moment of Medea's gray hair and red lipstick rage. And so goes Perry, blazing his own particular path and brand of black feminism and empowerment, first on stage, then in two hit films, and now even in print. His new book, Don't Make a Black Woman Take Off Her Earrings, debuted at number one on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. Love Perry or hate him, he has nonetheless managed to articulate a strong black woman's voice and vision in his popular morality tales that have won audiences over to the tune of millions in profit. Some black women dislike Perry playing a female character, but his success comes in an era when dominant hip-hop culture frames black women as gold diggers or worse. Sneers at romance, idealizes women with lighter hues and keener features, and only endows men with the toughness required for street justice. The scene in the walk-in closet ends with the arrival of the other woman, her threat to call the police, and Medea's memorable retort, call the popoho. It is obvious that the rags to riches Perry is benefiting from the lessons learned while he toiled on the black theater chitlin circuit. He hates that term. Marketed to churches filled with black women, honed his Christian soap operas of redemption and forgiveness, and created an audience with direct advertising on much listened to black radio. But perhaps not as obvious is his ability to hammer at themes that appeal to an ignored audience of black women hungry for portrayals of their lives, stories, and dreams. <coughs> Sorry. Um, to an ignored audience of black women hungry for portrayals of their lives, stories, and dreams that exist beyond the frame and male-centeredness of music videos or hood flicks. Okay. Um, <clears throat> reflected in the title of his book, he is especially likes to praise <clears throat> and not denigrate the fortitude and battle savvy of the women he has known. Exhibit one in his toughness, in this toughness, is of course Medea, <clears throat> a grandmother of warmth and wit. Perry, who transforms his six and a half foot frame into the character Medea, with much makeup and prosthetics, says he created her as a composite of many women he knew growing up in New Orleans, most notably his mother Maxine and his aunt Mayola. <clears throat> but citing other influences, he also dedicates his new book to Big Mabel Murphy, Viola, <clears throat> Olabia, Sylvia, and all those women who were on the block. Many of Medea's fans have come to love her as a grandma in the hood who isn't afraid to settle a dispute with the language and mode of the streets, 
In the film Diary, when Helen's mother, Cicely Tyson, utters the gospel lyric, Peace Be Still, Medea responds, well, you know what? Peace is always steel around me because I keeps what they call a piece of steel. Quickly retrieving a semi-automatic weapon from her purse on the kitchen counter, she continues, long as you got a piece of steel, you're going to have peace. Zeroing in on Medea's flair for the not-so-veiled threat, Perry's most recent film, Medea's Family Reunion, which grossed more than $63 million in theaters, was marketed heavily on black radio and TV with a scene where two nieces ask what a young woman should do about a boyfriend who hits her. Before or after his funeral is Medea's no-nonsense reply. But with Perry, it's not all about toughness. Another unifying thread through his work is attention to and genuine sympathy for the issues of love, commitment, marriage, and family that black women seem to focus on more than black men. Even the fact that he made Diary of a Mad Black Woman, his first film release, exemplifies his focus on his core audience. In Diary, Helen, played by the actress Kimberly Elise, makes the journey from being the wife of a successful lawyer with a mansion and maid to being penniless and waiting tables. But she also journeys from being with a cruel, soulless man to a relationship with a steelworker played by Shamar Moore, who loves her and wants to marry her. He tells her, if you're away from me for more than an hour, I can't stop thinking about you. I carry you in my spirit. I pray for you more than I pray for myself. And when you smile, my world is all right. Similarly, in Medea's family reunion, a working-class single mother, Vanessa, played by Lisa Arundel Anderson, learns to overcome her fears and embrace new love. And probably she gets to heal ugly wounds from her childhood and shine. In this tale, as well as others, Perry also makes pointed comments about color and class discrimination within the black community and lets the chocolate girls be Cinderella. Somewhere within the Medea jokes, church-centered storylines, and frequent melodrama, Perry includes romance that, as Helen's steelworker says, feels like a fairy tale. Sure, it's usually a syrupy sweet tale, but black film seems to offer black women either syrup sweet or gin and juice. Easy to choose sweetness. When Perry talks about Medea's character and dialogue, he sounds as if he is channeling an ancestral spirit of a female warrior needed in these times. Quote, in the black community, Medea was the head of that village, he writes in Don't Make a Black Woman Take Off Her Earrings. Her name is the southern term for mother dear, he adds. Medea used to be on every corner in every neighborhood where, when I was growing up and generations before. No matter what race you are, everybody wants to have a Medea in their family. She's not politically correct. She doesn't care about anything but what is honest and true. Thank you. Well, um, I'd like to open it up for discussion and questions and comments from all of you because as I've um, gone around reading from the book, the most interesting things have come from the audience, really. Um, because for every film I like, you know, someone hates it. You know, this woman who 
Um, I don't know, she's probably in her 60s. She, she hated She's Gotta Have It. She said, I walked out of that film, and how, don't come here talking about that movie. You know, so she was down in North Carolina. And so, um, you know, I, I really enjoy hearing other people's reactions to films, like their favorite films, their most hated films from the last 20 years um, after Spike Lee's debut, and, you know, what that, you know, era of film did for each of you or, you know, any of the films that I talked about. <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you think um, that African-American films should have any sense of social responsibility? Because there's always a schism between um, folks I'm acquainted with and folks I admire saying whether or not they should be trying to teach directly or indirectly healthier ways of life Um, if I had to make my own movies, I would want them to all be meaningful and to, you know, kind of deal with, I'm not, I don't remember the phrase you used, just our own legacy and our history. Our <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, and this is actually a subject that people have been talking about a lot lately because of the shoddy treatment at the box office that um, received by... Um, <coughs> The great debaters, and <clears throat> in comparison, how we went in droves to see First Sunday. So, exactly, and um, I don't know um, what possessed someone to say something to me recently. Oh, did you hear about this whole controversy about Denzel and how he shouldn't be making great debaters? I said, you know, leave Denzel alone. He makes he makes the great debaters. We don't go see it. We go see um, American Gangster. So it's like I know I'm kind of getting far afield from your question, but this is something that we keep talking about. But the only way we're going to solve it is to go to see those movies that um, you know and make our children go. I think that a lot of times we as adults go, but the teen market is what drives the movie business. So on Christmas Day, instead of making our teenagers go with us to see great debaters, we let them go see National Treasure, you know, or we let them, let them go see I Am Legend again, you know what I mean, for the third time or whatever, you know. And, you know, it, it just is something that keeps happening. I mean, the movies are being made. Um, they're documentaries. They're things on television. But they're not the, the films that are making the money. And Hollywood is a business that is going to chase the money. And if you make one movie that bombs, I mean, luckily, Great Debaters has Denzel and Oprah behind it. And they're, they're, they, were, they were prepared, I think, to take a loss. But a lot of places aren't going to, they're not going to fund you again. They say, look, we're not going to make your movie. We're going to go over here to Ice Cube and make Barbershop 5. You know? Did they take a loss on Great Debaters? Yes. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they'll make up money in the DVD market, but I, from what I hear from teenagers who I talk to, there were so many bootlegs out of the film that, you know, that's another why. We, I don't know why we do that. Why are we going to, like, hurt our own movies? You know, I guess, you know, that's another, that's a whole other subject, right? But I do, I, I do 
try to support the movies that are about something. Even if they don't get a big theatrical release, even if they I, I try to cover them anyway, you know, and, and and some movies are only shown in film festivals and I'll try to write about those. Or they'll be released on V D V D and I'll try to write about those. So Will be a detriment because all these different platforms that I'm becoming knowledgeable myself. Because right now I bought myself a PDA a few months ago, and I can actually load an entire film, film yeah. multiple films, on my cell phone PDA and watch it. I can watch CNN newscast mm -hmm. um, over my phone. Um, then the whole controversy of when they're going to release to the public internet bandwidth, where Right. HD TV and everything else. Do you think that will help? If we take advantage of it and, and get a sense mastery of it will benefit us in the long run? I'm not sure if on the user end it will benefit black filmmakers, but it's become cheaper to make a movie. And that has helped us. I mean, they don't actually have to make a movie on film anymore, so they can actually get a very high quality video done. And then they transfer that and that makes it much cheaper. So that has helped filmmakers, but I'm, I'm not sure about that yet because I don't know how much we will buy into those fancy gadgets and you know, how much our films will, will benefit from that. You know, right now, um, our films still benefit greatly from the rental market, like DVDs and VHS. Like, you know, um, um, you know, there used to be a joke that you know, when black people stopped going to Blockbuster, it, was clo it would close. And, and, you know, you can really see that as that market has waned, you know, you've seen blockbusters close, you know, because we, we um, either have this, the digital cable and we get the um, pay-per-view or whatever, and a lot of people don't even go to Blockbuster anymore. So I'm just not really sure about that technology. And um, even though I work online, I'm not like you. I don't like, you know, have like, I don't use like a PDA to that extent, but I do know that, that all the webmasters and everybody are moving us towards cell phone formats in our websites, for example. And they say, okay, you know, this year you have to start thinking about formatting your website for a cell phone screen. Okay, so I do know everything's going that way. I'm just not sure how much we'll be on the edge of that technology. The heroes. Well, you know, there aren't that many films that really feature black women. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I don't even consider that a black film. You know, that's, uh, you know. When I say black film, I mean, if you have a character, if you have a black character. Oh, okay. Yeah, very often we claim those films, yeah, like Ray and, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I have seen um, 
what you're talking about in a few films. I hated Monsters Ball. I mean, you know, I, I, I had so many people like, you know, accuse me, oh, you just hating Hallie, you know, you just hate, you know. No, I just hated the film. I hated the film. And I had a lot of people, because it was a black producer, Lee Daniels, who's gone on to do some other things, say that I was like, you know, really, you know, heresy to like talk about this film because it was a black producer. And um, I guess the real problem I had is that it just wasn't honest in terms of, of this, the, the, the racial legacy that it kind of portrayed. I didn't think it was emotionally honest, you know. Um, and um, I haven't really seen anything as bad as that since then. So in terms of the victimization, I'm not really sure. Um, can, can, can I make one clear? By using her like that in that film, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And be expected to portray the worst, and so that image sort of just goes on and on, like with the American gangster, as long as yeah. the African American is seen in a negative light, and somehow, whether it's morally or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I don't know. I was trying to like trying to think about the black woman as victim. I do know that. I mean, I've seen even in this in terms of compiling this book, you know, there were a number of books, uh, movies where. Um, black women certainly were victims. Um, there are also movies where, you know, black women triumph also. Um, and similarly, I've seen what, what you describe as kind of like, you know, showing us in our worst light, but I've also seen movies where we were shown at our best, too. You know, movies where I've just cried, you know, just, you know, that I thought were just really stunning and... and um, um, Actually, I, I was going to do that because I realized I was going that way. Um, I have this epilogue in the book where I have, oh, it's called The Lists. And so I, I have, um, I don't have a best and worst, but I have like the fiercest. And like, for example, like the film um, Antoine Fisher, you know, I mean, I think that's the top of my list. Um, it showed, um, I think, black men and women at their worst and at their best. I mean, there's a scene in there when he confronts his mother who left him when he was a baby. I guess she had him in prison or whatever, and she just abandoned him. And there's a scene where he kind of confronts this woman who he's never seen before, and it's the most heartbreaking scene to me. I mean, it's very moving, you know, just, you know, but also when he meets his family who he's never met, and they embrace him. I mean, there's some scenes in that movie that, I mean, just right now, I just get chills thinking about them because I think it's a film that really didn't get the type of, um, of notice that it should. You know, that it really kind of got lost in the shuffle. It's, it's, it's actually odd because I think of it in comparison to um, right after Antoine Fisher came out, Barbershop came out or something like that, or Barbershop 2. And just after The Great Debaters came out, you know, Ice Cube's other movie came out. So, and, and they were sim- treated similarly at the box office, even though Antoine Fisher did better. Um, so I, I've seen both. And so um, um, I, I know the films you're talking about, but I also, like, think of these that made me f- feel like the, the, the black image was, like, really strong. And I think that this is something that marked, um, made a difference in this era of film as opposed to er- earlier eras. Because when I grew up, I mean, in the 70s, I didn't have any 
anything really positive to look at. I mean, maybe if you consider Shaft or, um, you know, movies like that, like positive. I mean, there wasn't anything. And then you got to the 80, early 80s, and then it was like Richard Pryor movies, you know, or Eddie Murphy, um, Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, even though I really did like the one where he, 48 Hours, I think, you know, that was funny to me. But still, I mean, um, so anyway, some of the other fierce films, okay? And, and um, When the Levees Broke, um, the, the documentary Spike Lee did on Katrina, um, the Matrix Trilogy. Well, no, it's not a black film, but like Reginald said, I have OPM in the book, Other People's Movies. And we do claim movies if they have strong black characters. And for me, Morpheus was this really revolutionary character. I mean, to me, he was. And I just, I go see the Matrix just to see Morpheus. And the Oracle was black, right? Black, like, yeah, you know, the, the as the Messiah, right, right. You know, she looked like she was like living in the Brooklyn Projects or something, yeah. right? You know, um, Malcolm X, uh, Glory, uh, Control Room, and that's a movie I show a lot to my journalism students. But um, Control Room is a documentary about Al Jazeera, um, the news Arab news agency. That's a really fierce film, um, Ray. Um, a documentary called Race the Power of an Illusion. If you can ever see that, um, see the um, whole series. Um, particularly, I think it may be number two in the series or number three. It's called The House We Live In. And it really talks about how, um, you know, look at it this way. The white, white baby boomers, when they, um, they are going to inherit, like, trillions of dollars, like, you know, just in terms of, and, and black baby boomers are going to inherit debt, okay? And it really starts with the fact that from the beginning of this country, the, the most affirmative action has been for white people in terms of who could own land, you know, who could actually get ahead financially. And, and it's all snowballed to this point where, um, you know, you can't really get ahead the way you, you could at one point when it was much cheaper to own land. Um, you know, I tried, to, I tried to tell this to a coworker at the Post one time. She was doing an article about um, philanthropy, and I was making the point. Um, she was talking about Levittown in New York and how all these returning GIs from World War II went to buy houses in Levittown. I said, well, you know, they didn't allow black soldiers to buy in Levittown. And I said, you know, all those homes, those little $10,000 homes or $5,000 homes they bought in the 1940s, they're worth like $300,000, $400,000 now. And if you had that much equity in a home, your, your family could have sent your child to college. You could have started a business. You know, it's not just about one discriminatory action. But anyway, Race the Power of an Illusion is a really excellent series. Um, Life and Debt about Jamaica. Ali. You know, I don't know why we didn't support Will Smith playing Ali. People just didn't think he could do it, but that was a really tremendous film. You know. Oh, okay. Um, Bamboozled. Ah. Ah. You everything that we've experienced in auditions, everything trying to be socially conscious and African-centered, how it's just 
minimalized. I was going to ask you about I got it. Well, through that, that, that trend flip-flopping from a VHS to D, uh, the DVD. I had it got it on VHS, but then when I got it on DVD with the bonus features uh, and everything else. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so who else is on this list? Okay, Simeon. This is a movie I know and none of you saw, but it, it was by Uzan Palsi, who also did... Um, yeah, and she showed this film at, um, I think it was the Acapulco Black Film Festival. And if you can ever get it, it's just a beautiful film. I mean, you talk about a movie about culture. You know, she just goes from the Caribbean to Paris, and, you know, it's just awesome. Another um, film festival movie called The Visit. And I don't know if any of so I saw it. Um, it's really, you know, heartbreaking movie. Lumumba. Anyone see Lumumba? Okay, uh, Fahrenheit 9/11. I know it's not a black movie, but beloved. Um, you know, I really like the Blade trilogy. I know a lot of people didn't like the vampires, but I really got a kick out of that. I dug one, and the second was cool. The third the one was third crazy. One. <laughs> wow. Yeah, right. Because he just had to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, um, and for some reason, I was really digging Mission Impossible 3, you know, with the, maybe it was that Morpheus thing, you know, he was like in this new, you know, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, maybe I'm just sprung, you know, yeah. Um, Enemy of the State, um, Rabbit Proof Fence, anyone see that movie, Rabbit Proof Fence, yeah. about Australia? And yeah. also with the, with the apology that it's dead. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And um, The Corner, um, oh, that's out of here in Baltimore, right? That series, okay. And Apocalypto. Um, when I, I went to um, um, L.A. last year for a fellowship, and actually um, this Mexican-American woman I was talking to was telling me all the controversy and how so many Mexicans didn't like Apocalypto. But I was just so interested in a movie that talked about prehistory, like, but not like about Rome or Europe, <laughs> you know, like from some other culture. Like how many Greek or Rome or, you know, Sparta, 300. How many of those movies can I see, you know, where it's like, you know, people of color either demonized or non-existent? And so those are some of the movies that I thought, you know. What did you think of uh, Pride, the swimming? You know, it was, I put it on my top ten for last year only because I, I just really respected the story they tried to tell. It was very low budget. You know, there was a lot of mistakes in the movie. Like, you know, maybe only women noticed, but, like, some things, like, she she got into the pool, the, the woman swimmer got into the pool with her, like, her bathing cap on, and then she when she got out, she didn't have one on or something like that, you know? It was just kind of, like, low budget. A what? Continuity person. Yeah, yeah, right. It's little, little things like that, but I just, I, you know, I thought that, you know, it was trying to tell a good story, and I appreciated uh, Terrence Howard in it, and did he have like a Jerry curl or something? Like some kind of wig or something with his hair? I mean, I just thought it was, it was great. You know, it looked good, you know, seven, real 70s, you know, and he managed to subject himself to that, you know. Um, I have a question for you. Hmm. I'm a filmmaker and a screenwriter here in Baltimore. Oh. I'm working on a screenplay now about a, a series of three interracial couples and the sexual politics that Okay. Um, in the process of doing the 
Now, are they? Uh, how, what, what's the configuration of the relationships? All black males like each other. Why? Um, because Hollywood will cover the other end of that. They won't well, why can't them. you just make them do it? Um, I'm not interested in making them do it. I want to do it myself. All right, then that means that you're free to do what you want to do. Then. Absolutely. All right, go ahead. Okay. And what I've also found is that there's, there's almost no black female actresses who have not been in that situation. And I have no problem. People have to work. They have to pay up their check. But you really can't think of any black female actress who has not been cast as <coughs> a white male in a romantic or sexual situation. So I was, I was curious as to whether or not you've ever seen that. And if so, do you have an opinion on it? Um, the whole interracial thing. Well. Actually, at the beginning, at the beginning of this era that I cover in the book, it was the opposite, you know, where you did see the black actors either cast, uh, you know, opposite white women all the time, and black women were never um, featured as a love interest, you know, hardly ever even in the opposite of black man. I mean, you just didn't see any romances at all. So I guess the first thing I would say is that in this era of film, there's been an evolution from where um, black women hardly ever were shown as love interests at all to the point where there are more romances opposite black men and, as you say, opposite um, white men as well. Now, as far as it being commented on as a racial relationship, maybe that's true. I'm not, I haven't really thought about that, but I just think that the actual pairing of two people makes a comment itself on screen, you know? Um, um, you know, think about early on, you know, you had Jungle Fever, you know, you had um, the one I always think of, um, 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 Lawrence, uh, you know, Lawrence Fishburne was in a couple of them um, with the CIA agent with um, the blonde, um, Ellen Barkin, and then another one where he played Othello, yeah, Othello. Um, you know, they've tried to get Denzel to take a few roles, but he hasn't taken them. Um, you know, it seemed like at some point, you know, Wesley Snipes never had a, a black love interest ever, you know. Um, so um, what I've seen more so in covering this era of film is the fact that um, black women haven't been, you know, made the love interest. And, and in a piece that I didn't read to you, you know, I kind of talk about that and how it kind of skews, I think, the way that we see each other even, you know, and the way we see our relationships. Um, now, toward the end, now I see there are more um, movies that are romantic relationships, and I and I actually love, welcome them. You know, even something that is just kind of like standard Hollywood fare, like um, Waist Deep, you know. I like the fact that Tyrese Gibson was really fighting for his son to get his son back, and that he had a, a, a black 
woman, you know what I mean, that, at the end. You know what I mean? It's, you know, it had a romantic element to it. Um, as far as the, um, I don't really see it the other way so much that um, in terms of black women with white men that I think it's like some trend. There's no black actress you can name Yeah, but how many black men, how many black actors haven't been in it either? I mean, the last two films I've seen Morgan Freeman in have been with, um, they haven't been big movies, but, you know, maybe they've kind of gone under the radar, but the last two movies I've seen him in, he's, he's been an older black man with a, a white wife. Well, doesn't that tell you something? That you haven't seen um, well, what does it say to you? Like that, or, or what does it say to you? Well, I, I, I look at it and I see that, that African-American males in society are being removed for a variety of reasons. And when you go into a cinema and you see, I have a daughter, and you see this being op opted out or being offered as an option, I don't think anything in the film is accidental. I think there's, being a filmmaker, I know nothing's accidental. Everything is planned. So when you put that out as an option, I'm just curious as to how we receive that or, or if we receive that, if we even make a, make a note of that. I think we do. I think we're very conscious of it. Um, you know, um, in the story I... I didn't read, um, that's in the book called What About Black Romance. I mean, it kind of really talks about that a lot. And, and the whole psyche, I think, that it, it creates among black women. And when you never see yourself on the screen as a, as a love interest, when black girls can never see themselves as the, as the romantic heroine, that's one thing. That's another thing in terms of, you know, I have my fiercest list. But I also think that there are, like, little points like that in this time period that are very important on a psychological level in the sense that, um, you know, I think that Sanaa Lathan was our first black romantic heroine, okay? And Love and Basketball, Waiting to Exhale, Brown Sugar. Um, she is someone who's young and pretty, and she's been the love interest Something in... Yeah, 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 and something new, yes, but it's not as if that was the only love movie she ever made. She had an ample opportunity to have black suitors in other movies. No, but but she 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 had already reached that before something new. I mean, in my eyes, and um, but I, I guess my point is that. To even, to, to even say, you know, I, I would have to be like sometime in my 30s before I saw a black woman in that type of role, that's pretty sad. I mean, you know, I had to see like Cindy Crawford or what's her name? I mean, Julie, um, you know what I mean? Just any, uh, any, any art, uh, actress you can think of. I grew up watching them as like the love interest and not anyone who looked like me. And so I feel when you talk about your daughter, I feel that. And I also think about my son. You know, what, what's he watching? Is he able to see black women on the screen as a love interest? Or is it just, you know, always someone else? You know? Um, and not, on, not just a black woman, but black women of all types uh, who look all types of ways, too. You know what I mean? So I, you know. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
Right. Then how can a black female be a love interest unless she's classified as beautiful? So right. They have a hard time doing that. They only do that in uh, movie cast things like this. So uh, it seems like Hollywood, male-dominated, white male-dominated, is racist. And it wants the white female to always be seen as the beautiful one. Right. Well, that's why we make our own movies, so we can sur subvert the dominant paradigm, you know. You know, that's why we should, and that's why this era of film is important to me, because we got past some of those rules, you know, some of those, um, those mainstays, those truisms that you're talking about. I think that we did break some. You know, uh, like Reginald said, a lot of people, they hate our films, they say, but there are a lot of good things that have been made in the last 20 years and things that have made me, you know, sit back and, you know, in awe or be proud or, or some things that have been uplifting. I haven't been just totally, like, torn down going to the movies, you know what I mean? And I could, it, you know, when you look at some of the movies, you know, um, you know, now, like, if you look at movies like some of the movies from the 70s and stuff, you know, you're like, you know, we went to see that, you know. And, but, you know, we thought that was a good time, you know. My whole thing about the 70s, I don't, they must not have had ratings, because I don't even know how we got into those movies. Now I look at them like, did they have ratings then, like, where you couldn't get into the movie if you were, like, 17? Or, I mean, I mean, I look, it's like Dolomite or something, like, you know. <laughs> how in the world did they let us in those movies, you know? Yeah, no. Like, the last question, young lady, lady over there. Yeah. I was just wondering what you think of some of the really interesting Brazilian films like City of God and the documentary Bus 174 that talk about the social inequities in Brazil for black people going to jail. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I really, uh, just in general, like seeing things from different parts of the diaspora, you know, it's been like really, you know, just really interesting to me. It's one of the my favorite things about writing about film, you know. Um, and, and you know, the, the thing is, I guess this two, my answer is kind of twofold because I have a particular bone to pick with Brazil. So many Brazilians I know like to paint their country as like above race. And they try to tell you stuff like, oh, we don't have racism the way you all have it there. I said, BS, I've been to Brazil. And they just have a warped, this whole warped thing. I had a woman who, my complexion, with a jerry curl, told me she was Portuguese. Okay? She told me she was white. All right? And um, so, basically, instead of having the one-drop rule like we have here, like, they have the opposite. It's like they try to make more and more people white and marginalize the people who are still considered black, you know, whereas we embrace everybody. If you have one black, you have a little curl in your hair, you're black, okay? And um, so I, I, I have a particular issue with people from Brazil. And so when I watched City of God, um, I looked at it from that perspective, and you could say bias, that I saw the main character. I saw it as them just like, you know, just, you know, how they were just painting these pictures, these crazy niggas. You know what I'm trying to say? You know, and um, I also thought that how his kind of like his, his savior or his salvation in the movie was through white people. You know what I mean? How the newspaper editors or the, the, more, the more saner elements in his environment, they were all either white people or very light, people who would be considered white there. You know what I mean? And I just like, you know, I didn't like it. I kind of talked about that. And people sent me emails saying, you know, you, 
you don't know what you're talking about. You've never been to Brazil. And then I could tell them, yes, I have. So, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it's one of those things I think that, you know, you don't just, um, you know, the movie doesn't just come to you. You bring yourself to the movie. So everything I felt, I was bringing to that movie when I watched it, you know. Exactly, exactly. But it's just the way the movie was. It's just, just like um, Blood Diamond. You know, people talking to me about, oh, you know, how, um, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you have to look at how, um, you know, people were humanized in the movie. Like you talked about the um, Leonardo DiCaprio character, how, you know, um, this was another racist humanized on the screen, just like the cop in Crash. So at the end, he gets to be the savior, you know, even though he's a racist, you know. And so in Blood Diamond, you have this South African mercenary who gets to be the hero at the end. You know, he gets to redeem himself and be the hero. He was like a virile racist. He called him a Kaffir and, you know, was fighting him and beating him in his head and everything. But, I mean, there was a lot of issues I had with the movie. But I said, well, okay. Uh, granted, I think that it's good to be able to humanize people we disagree with. Well, then how come all the um, the little child soldiers, how come they weren't humanized? You know, they were like animals in the movie. They were just killing each other, chopping each other's limbs off. So a lot of times when people talk about humanizing elements in films, they don't do that across the board. They still... Um, especially if there are movies about other parts of the third world in Africa and South America, they, they're not trying to humanize us, you know. So that's the only problem I have with that argument when people, you know, want to. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, we have to stop before the right. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. Tell Flair I said hi. I'll do that. Uh -huh. check your website a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope you good luck with your what are you, your film. Yeah, it's the second one. I actually did one in 2008. So this is Okay. Yeah. Did you go to festivals with it or um, we went to the American Black Film Festival and we got a distributor, so we had to go Okay. What's your film? Yeah, it's called Sensitivity. Okay. Yeah. Did we review it or actually I don't think you did, but um I'll send you some information about it. I got some information about it. Okay. Okay. So it's available on D V D now or okay. 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 Thank you so much. Yeah, please. Oh yes, absolutely. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm kind of sick, so I better not shake hands. I better not shake hands. Um, yeah. Oh, is this for? Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I should. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. 